so I'm, I'm a theoretical physicist, uh, but I'm going to be talking about the future of mind and intelligence. Uh, I think it's not entirely inappropriate to do that because uh, physical platforms are absolutely a fundamental consideration in uh, the future of mind and intelligence. I, I would think it's fair to say that uh, the continued uh, success of Moore's law has been absolutely central to all the developments in artificial in, in, uh, intelligence and uh, the evolution of machines, machine learning, uh, at least as much as any uh, uh, cleverness in algorithms. So I'm going to uh, divide my remarks into four, four, four pieces. Uh, like a physicist, I try to break things down. Uh, so first I'll talk about the in-principle advantages of artificial intelligence uh, with uh, existing kind of engineering principles. Uh, then I will talk about the uh, enormous lead that natural intelligence in the world actually has, although there are obviously great motivations for uh, having general purpose artificial intelligence that would be servants or soldiers or other uh, useful kinds of objects that are not out there, and why not? Uh, then I'll talk a little bit about the, force, the forces that will drive intelligent, uh, towards intelligence. Perhaps that's superfluous here, but we've been talking about uh, improvements in intelligence are an end in themselves, but I think it's worth at least saying why that's going to happen. And then finally, I'll draw some implications. I'll, I'll argue for a, uh, an emph the, uh, the, and the appropriateness of an emphasis on a new form of engineering that I think is not being uh, very uh, vigorously enough cultivated. And I'll draw some consequences for what I think the future of intelligence will be. So uh, the first, first part is uh, intelligence, the advantages of artificial over natural intelligence. Uh, and uh, they're remarkable. I mean, they're extraordinarily uh, uh, powerful uh, quantitatively and, and qualitatively. Uh, for instance, speed. The transistors can run, which are the basic uh, decision-making processes or information, pro information processors in, uh, in modern computers, uh, operate at uh, tens of gigahertz, typically. Uh, whereas, so that's uh, 10 billion operations per second, whereas uh, human... Uh, brains, well, there's a, a lot of things that go on in human brains, but a typical uh, uh, estimate for a speed that's, I think, fair is you can ask uh, how fast can we notice that movies are a, still, a series of still images rather than a continuous image, and it, it's about 40 per second. So there's a factor of a billion there, at least plus, you know, in order of magnitude. They're much faster. The machines are a lot faster. Uh, 
They have much better error freedom and ability to correct errors. They operate digitally. Uh, they have the ability to download, be, uh, associated with that, they have the ability to download enormous amounts of information seamlessly and automatically. Uh, their architecture is uh, known because they were built, so they're modular. You can add abilities to them. You can prog you know, add programs, but you would also add uh, senses. You could, uh, if you want them to say, uh, look at scenes in ultraviolet, well, you plug in an ultraviolet camera and they have it. Uh, also, uh, maybe important in the future, they're, uh, a special case of that is that they're ready for quantum mechanics. If quantum mechanics turns out to be an important way of processing information because it opens up new levels of uh, parallel processing, uh, then Again, you can plug it in as a module. Uh, and they have a very good duty cycle. They don't need to care in feeding. And uh, most importantly, they don't die. So artificial intelligence has many advantages. Yet, so it's almost paradoxical. Why, why aren't they doing better than they are? Uh, well. What about natural intelligence? Why does it have, uh, what, what, what does advantages does it have in its present, uh, in the present sort of competition, if you like? Uh, one thing is that it's much more compact. It makes use of all three dimensions, whereas existing uh, semiconductor technology is basically two-dimensional. Uh, it's self-repairing. It, uh, Whereas you know, uh, chips have to be made in very expensive clean rooms and, and, and they're very delicate, lots of things can go wrong and, any, and errors frequently cause the necessity to shut it down and reboot. Uh, brains aren't that way. Uh, we have integrated input and output facilities, namely uh, eyes, ears, and so forth that interact very well with the world and have been sculpted over millions or billions of years of evolution to match uh, the, the world we find ourselves in very well. And we also have very good uh, muscular control of our body and, uh, and speech. So we have very good input and output uh, facilities that, seem, that are seamlessly integrated into our information processing. However, I would say all of those, although they're impressive, they're not, uh, they're not at all outside the uh, plausible domain of near future engineering. We, we know how to make things more three-dimensional. Uh, we know how to work around defects and maybe make some self-repair. I think there, there are clear ways forward in all those things. And of course, there are also clear ways forward in uh, making better input and output uh, modules. I should, I should have said when I was talking about artificial intelligence is that although the uh, input and output modules for uh, human brains are very impressive, they by no means uh, approach physical limits. Uh, even your phone can make, your, your intelligent phone can take 
can make better images and and uh, and computers can talk and so. You can see single photons in your ears transduce Brownian motion. Our sensors are physically limited. Oh, in some in some small respects, yes. But but for instance, our vision takes a very crude sampling of the electromagnetic yeah. spectrum Just and the and is, is physically limited. The raw sensors are physically limited. So actually, in the optic nerve, it's suppressed. <laughs> the signal is suppressed unless you see like five photons. Otherwise, you'd be seeing well, flashes of light all the time. Yes. <laughs> in some very, very, very restricted areas, there are physical limits. But, but we don't exhaust physical limits on a, on, in, except in a very, very few exceptional cases. Uh, and I mean, for instance, uh, our resolution in space and time of vision, which is our best uh, uh, sense, is not is not that good. It only samples a limited part of the spectrum, and even in that limited part of the spectrum, takes three crude averages. We don't <coughs> sense polarization and so forth and so on. All those things machines can do and do do. Uh, however. Uh, where humans do have, I think, a qualitative advantage and uh, something that's far beyond anything in existing uh, engineering is in the con connectivity and development of their basic units. Uh, the brain is made out of tens or tens of tens of billions of units, each of which is an impressive uh, module, then there are the glia that help along. Uh, these were made by processes of self-reproduction and exponential growth. Uh, current engineering doesn't have anything like that, where you have exponential growth of sophisticated units that self-reproduce. And part of the process also is that they have enormous amounts of connectivity. Ian already mentioned this, but it bears repeating. The uh, semiconductor technology has tens to maybe a, 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 a typically uh, less than 10, but up tens at the extreme, maybe 100 connections per unit, whereas uh, the brain has thousands. Per, uh, so this, these are quality. These are differences are so. These differences are uh, so vast quantitatively that I think they're, they count as being qualitative differences between uh, current artificial intelligence engineering and natural intelligence. And this is where natural intelligence has a big edge. And it gives, and it gives, a, it gives a big utility. This touches on, I was very pleased actually to see, to, that, to hear Allison's talk first, because this touches very much on uh, the learning algorithms and the learning process that humans use, they have this vast collection of neurons and connections and spend a lot of time getting rid of them and sculpting them. That's the way uh, human learning uh, mainly works, that you interact with the world, you get feedback, some connections get reinforced, others get winnowed away, and uh, this has been discovered now to be a very, very powerful way of learning things in neural nets, artificial neural nets, but real neural nets are 
of course, on another scale altogether, just because they're bigger, hooked up to the external world better, and more connected. And if you've ever uh, watched a baby grow up, uh, you can and have this picture in mind that this brain is being sculpted, you can understand sort of better, babies better, I think. You can understand what, what they're doing, what they're about. And, and uh, I think it's very illuminating to, to have this picture of what's going on if, you're, if you want to enjoy your baby, your child. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Okay, so so that was the second uh, topic, the advantages of natural intelligence. Now let me talk about why I think uh, there will be a drive, a sort of evolutionary drive, if you like, towards uh, increasing of intelligence as an end in itself, sort of whether you like it or not, uh, a demand side as opposed to people who just want to make it better for, from a supply side. Uh, first of all, there's consumers. Human beings want to get an edge over other human beings by uh, improving themselves, having better machine helpers. Uh, they'd also like to improve their children. They'd also like to have servants and so forth. I mean, so obviously, uh, there's a tremendous consumer demand. There's also military demand, and there's also, uh, and that's a worrisome one uh, for obvious reasons because the uh, reward functions, the utility functions for military artificial intelligence are going to be things that could easily go awry. Uh, and then there's uh, the drive towards exploration of space. If we want to, uh, human bodies are very, very delicate. They are not radiation hard hardened. They need water, they need supplies, and many things can go wrong, as the space exploration program has shown. Uh, it'd be much more efficient and, I think, inevitable to send uh, some kind of cyborgs or artificial objects uh, as the vanguard of space exploration. So if we want to expand intelligence uh, beyond the biosphere, that's, that's going to be an important drive. So, uh, so let me draw some implications from these remarks. They're meant, meant also to stimulate discussion. Uh, one is that uh, I don't think a singularity is imminent. I don't think, <laughs> uh, although there's been quite a bit of talk about it, I don't think the uh, prospect of artificial intelligence just outstripping human intelligence is imminent because the engineering substrate just isn't there. And it's going to it's going to take a long. I, I don't the, the, I don't I don't see the immediate prospects of uh, of getting there. I haven't said much about quantum computing. Uh, I think other people will. But uh, if if you're waiting for quantum computing to make a singularity, uh, you're misguided. Uh, so. And I think that's really fortunate that it's going to be a crossover that I think will take decades, if not centuries. Uh, even there's this tremendous drive for intelligence, but there, there'll, be a, a long, there'll be a long period of coexistence where there'll be an ecology of intelligence, where there'll be humans who are enhanced in different ways uh, with, you know, with 
relatively trivial ways with uh, smartphones and access to the internet, but also uh, the integration will become more intimate as time goes on. And younger people who interact with these, from these devices from childhood will be a kind of cyborgs from the very beginning. They will think in different ways than, than the current adults do. Uh, side by side with that, there will be autonomous intelligence and network intelligence. There will be a whole ecology of different kinds of powerful intelligence interacting with each other uh, for decades. Uh, now, that's, not, that's short on biological <laughs> evolution timescales, but it's a reasonable time on, uh, on uh, the, the timescale of human political and uh, economic institutions. So uh, there'll, be a, there'll be the opportunity to evolve morality. And I think that it's a really fortunate thing that there'll be a, a, a possibility of sort of learning by experience, uh, interacting with different kinds of intelligence. I think the, the idea that you can program intelligence, uh, just like the idea that you can program uh, other things that, I'm sorry, program your morality, just like uh, the idea that you can program other things that humans are good at, but we don't know how we do them, is very misguided. We just have to interact with the world and do them. That's that's a big theme. Uh, the so we're we're very good at uh, walking. We're very good at uh, learning language. We're very good at constructing a three-dimensional world from very partial information that arrives in our retina. But we don't know how we do any of those things, and we do them. We learn to do them largely by interacting with the world. And I think morality we we uh, we, we understand even less how we learn it or even what it is, but it comes such as it is from interacting with the world and other human beings. So it's really fortunate, I think, that there's not going to be a singularity, but a time of co-evolution, and uh, uh, that's, uh, that's what I think the future of intelligence is going to look like. I agree with your statement that AI and military use could easily go awry. Yes. And therefore, we need to be quite cautious about it. But what about the analogy that um, autonomous vehicles could go awry? Yes, they They're could. already 10 times better than humans. They're already driving vehicles. Well, but, but that reminds me of... Uh, talk we just heard about uh, extreme cases. All you have to do is have a runaway car vehicle that, <laughs> and so that breaks down somehow. Seriously. Yeah. What, and what, what wait, wait, just... You said they're 10 times better. What's the well, matter? <laughs> okay. In terms of, of accidents per mile driven, maybe 10 is too much. That's totally, totally off base. Completely off base. <laughs> the statistic is but way just, off base. Well, they could be. Let's suppose that they are soon. Purpose, that even they, they will soon be. Let's suppose that they are that way. They become that way. There's yeah. no way to lose that. It's not unreasonable to say that if they're not there now, they will be better than, not 10 times, they'll be at least uh, you know, 1.2 times better than humans. In other words, you, insurance company would rather insure an autonomous vehicle than a teenager. I think, I think this is the popular view of the press now is very, very misguided. Mm -hmm. Because there's no data or because the data is the other way? 
not so uh, given that we know what matter is and we and mind emerges from matter uh, we could in principle reproduce everything that goes on in the brain and nothing would be missing so the natural natural intelligence i firmly believe in that sense is a, a special case of artificial intelligence so an engineered entity could do anything that a human can do. So, uh, <laughs> when David Shaw was talking about downloading his yeah. brain capacity in a disk, you're saying you just replicate the brain. You don't, you don't even have to replicate, replicate its functions. Its yes. functions. Yeah. Or, or, uh, now, you know, that's, that's very much a thought experiment that's not practical at all. Uh, and pre <laughs> but 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 it's but uh, but as a matter of principle, it's hard to see how that could go wrong. It would, and you know, people in physics do uh, uh, very very delicate experiments, and they have to correct for all kinds of possible sources of contamination, shield from re. But currently are, are scanning brains down to the synaptic connection yes. and, and we're just at the edge of having the first data sets that are actually good enough to do that from scratch. Yeah. Um, they have these crazy electron microscopes that have like a hundred beams that do nanometer slices that read every single synapse that they then reconstruct in 3D so it's actually not that far off. Well, that's, that's, very, very, that's very, very far from having a functional brain or segment of a brain. And what could go wrong? But, yeah, sorry. To your very strong and beautiful statement about engagement with the world. Yes. And this human model of vast synaptic proliferation and then synaptic cropping that brings you down to some kind of an adult consciousness. So... How does the physicist's confidence in the material basis of, con of consciousness jibe with this very soft, mild meat machine creature that is in this environment? In other words, do you need to give Adam a skin made of sensory haptics? Do you need to have breath coming in and out of this machine to sense the world in a way that you imagine the young human sensing the world? So no, I don't think it's necessary. Well, it depends what you want to do. Of course, if you want to make a human companion that humans get along easily with no, psychologically, then... I'm pressing the point on this epiphenomenon. I'm yes. really pressing the point on that. In other words, I would argue, from the experience of art and you know life and feminist arguments and so on, that the meat is a big part of the epiphenomenon. And no one imagines AI as needing meat. So that's part of my provocation. So I'm saying well, in your hypothetical confidence about this trajectory in which the physical... First of all, okay. no, go ahead. Sorry. No, just, I mean, the, the confidence of the physicist in the replication of material. Yes. Does the material also require immune plasmas and breath and haptic uh, running through forests to take sets unconscious, in other words, how much well, of the unconscious being yeah. in the world is part of the epiphenomenon that doesn't interest you, but well, is hypothetically possible? The big industry working on artificial meat. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm surprised you talk about meat, but, but, but let's talk about the embodiment of intelligence. I think if the idea that interacting with the world is, is, an, is a vital part 
achieving general high levels of intelligence efficiently, then uh, some kind of receptive <laughs> apparatus is important. Uh, I don't think it would have to look like a human body. Uh, oh, I agree with that. But it, it you know, it, it wouldn't be a bad idea to have a, a skin that's telling you about the local environment. Or it's put a dress on the Roomba. A dress on the Roomba might be a part of <laughs> or, how you uh, get there. But should you have two eyes as opposed to three or four or six or, you know, or should you, uh, does the skin need to be made out of flesh as opposed to some kind of plastic? I think these are, these are very negotiable questions unless you want to uh, have autonomous intelligences that uh, interact intimately with humans. In that case, humans are accustomed to interacting with other humans. It might be good to have them. The artificial guys look like as human as possible. Oh, you and, like and, and also, the, if you want to have artificial intelligence that sort of appreciates the human experience and can make accurate models of what humans are thinking about and what they're experiencing, then again, you may want to have uh, fairly accurate uh, mimicry. You know, I, I'm genuinely, I'm genuinely unsure about this, but I think it is striking that from the as long as we've had language, and certainly as long as we've had writing, it's a real question about how much, how abstract we can get really intimate, close social interactions. So you know, every uh, think about Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning, right? I mean, it's it's remarkable that not with very much complex digital technology, with the technology of having you know a quill and a piece of paper, you can have a completely different medium that doesn't look like a typical human medium of interaction at all. And you seem to be able to get all the complexities and all the interactions and all the subtleties working working just fine. And yes, but they I knew what they were dealing with. So they had a pretty good model of what they were dealing with. That's yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, someone talked about the, uh, the uncanny valley this morning. Yeah. Um, I have tried with my graduate students when I was at MIT, I've tried with my pe people in my company to build not a two-armed bilateral symmetric robot, but I said build a three-armed robot because we can optimize much more. I've never been able to get anyone to build a three-armed robot. <laughs> don't, they feel it's too icky, they won't do it. Well, why don't you have them do eight and call it an octopus? Yeah. So, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying they're right. I'm just, I'm just, talk, I'm just pointing out there's a, there's a, a, a barrier that yeah. people have, um, which is not um, bounded rationally or anything like that. But there is this barrier. The other thing is, but I think like no, no matter what a robot looks like, yeah. how it looks is making a promise of what it's going to deliver. Mm -hmm. And when that promise mm -hmm. doesn't isn't matched by what does deliver, it's really uh, upsetting to uh, yes. so. <laughs> just, just an empirical point, there's just studies that just, have just come out, it's I would not have thought this, that kids do not experience an uncanny valley in the same way that adults do. So you would have thought that's kind of the natural state and then we have to overcome it, but it may be a result of 
a whole I, lot of experience with I, machines. Was leave it to Beaver or something? With well, I, you know, I don't know what it is with machines, and but you don't, and maybe it's a generational effect because these are tests, obviously, on kids you who are kids now. You called it a barrier, and I think that that's that may be appropriate. A barrier is something you can breach or get over, and once once you've breached it, maybe a, you know, there's a there's a there's a, a, a smooth path after that. Acceptance. So once you know what you're dealing with, uh, that that uh, so a large large part of this uh, the, the unease is just not knowing what to expect. But, uh, and the uh, the <laughs> classic formation of the uncanny valley is if it gets too close to the human, it's profoundly disturbing. Yes. It's experienced as a creepy uh, freak, right? So the eight arms would be the way to go. <laughs> and the 28 eyes would be the way to go. Um. So, Frank, you're, so you're, you're what, is your, your main point that this is going to happen, but it's yes. going to happen slowly? That's right. And so we're going to have time to get used to this, and maybe we should practice, practice being nice to these artificial intelligences before we let them appoint our president. Yeah, I, and I think kind of a feeling of, <laughs> uh, <laughs> of humility and learning by doing, not only practical tasks, but also uh, the, the co-evolution of these different kinds of intelligence will be something that evolves and, and involves learning by doing. I, th I think in the relatively short term, by short term I mean next 10, 20 years, um, as we get more robots in our homes, largely driven economically by the need for elder care, Yes. Um, those robots are going to have very different um, milk wells or wells that humans, they're going to have, they're going to have all the sensors that we, that are cheap as anything because they're on, they're on here. They're going to have, they're going to be able to detect, um, you know, a, 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 any Bluetooth device. They're going to be able to detect any Wi-Fi device. They're going to use Wi-Fi uh, to be able to detect when someone's breathing. They're going to be able to see the hot spots where someone was just sitting on the couch. Uh, it, you know, you have to have some intelligence to take care of it. They're going to have a very different sensory perception of the world that they're sharing with us. And, and I think that's going to be an interesting, another interesting thing, how we get used to them, and whether there'll be certain species of robots with particular sorts of sensory stuff that we understand, or whether we're going to be continuously surprised by them being knowing oh. stuff about us that we didn't expect them to know. Don't you think it will have very different sensory right? perception by then, too? Well, yeah, well, yes. Uh, Maybe not in that 10 to 20 year time frame. Um, there, there are two ways of talking about AI that are very common that I think are uh, uh, not appropriate. And it's going to be, become increasingly clear that they're not appropriate. One is to talk about AI in a way that's uh, sort of us versus them. But in fact, there are creations. And we will be interacting, as you say, in very intimate ways with them. And they'll be a part of society. The other, the other thing that you were alluding to is that it's, it's common to think of, to talk of AI as if, as if it's one thing. But in fact, intelligence, whether natural or artificial, can take many, many forms. And natural, natural intelligence is embodied in all kinds of animals maybe even in our digestive system and immune system and, and artificial intelligence, uh, all kinds of, is at all levels. Some people would argue that thermostats are a 
form of artificial intelligence. And then, then, it, then you have distributed intelligence. You could have soldiers. You could have servants. You could, and those would be very, very different kinds of minds. Thank you.